Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Nice, beautiful fall morning. How's everyone? I'm Althea Brooks, and I'm Director of Lifetime Learning in the Office of Engagement. It's a pleasure to welcome, welcome you to another More Than the Score. This uh, lecture series in, um, in relations with the Alumni Association we've been offering now for 11 years, so thank you for being here. We have another wonderful faculty member uh, from the Darden School who will be speaking with us this morning, Gregory Fairchild. How many of you have actually heard Gregory uh, Fairchild speak? Well, you're in for a great treat. Um, he is very lively, very engaging, um, very thought-provoking, so you will be uh, entertained as well as um, you'll learn something as well today. So thank you for being here. Um, help me welcome Gregory, but also help me welcome President Teresa Sullivan, who's joined us, all, uh, joined us here today as well. Thank you, President Sullivan, for being here. Um, if you would, take a moment to go ahead and turn off your cell phones or silence the ringer on that. We've passed out those orange feedback cards. Uh, we'd love to have your feedback. We'd love to have your comments about today's lecture. It helps us plan future lectures. Also, we'll have a drawing at the end of uh, the program today as well, so hopefully you've filled out uh, one, of the, one of the cards. I'm going to turn things over to Tom Falders, who is president and CEO here at the uh, Alumni Association. He'll be introducing our speaker for the morning. We are so, so glad that you're here. Who's, who's been here? Who's, this, is this your first time? Anyone in the, in the audience, first time? Thank you for being here. You've made my job that much easier. So thank you. Thank you, Althea. Um, it's appropriate that we have a business professor here today because my first question is, what is one of the largest and fastest growing industries in the United States? Prisons. Sad but true. Um, and it's, it's uh, their private uh, businesses doing prisons all over the country. Um, and we think about prisons kind of in the back of our mind occasionally. Um, Greg thinks about them quite a bit. We're very lucky to have Greg. He's, as you can see behind me, the E. Thayer Bigelow Associate Professor of Business. He's also starting up a, a program in the Washington, D.C. area, which I just learned this morning is oversubscribed by about 50%. So it's, it's a great start for an effort to do more in the Washington, D.C. area. Greg serves as the Academic Director of the Darden's Institute for Business and Society. Uh, for those of you who are looking for acronyms, it's IBIS. Uh, he teaches strategic management, entrepreneurship, and ethics in the Darden MBA and executive programs. He's received a number of awards for teaching excellence in the Darden School. His research is also very much renowned. He recently led in, was the lead investigator for studying business models and public policy issues in the field of community development finance, mm -hmm. and an initiative supported by a three-year, $850,000 grant from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Greg has won a number of awards and recognition. In 2009, he received the Faculty Pioneer Award presented by the Aspen Institute's Center for Business Education for, for his leadership and risk-taking in integrating ethical, environmental, and so, social issues into an MBA curriculum. In 2010, he was named one of five high-impact research professors and the sole scholar focused on entrepreneurship by the Financial Times. In 2011, he was the only academic named as one of the 25 Virginians to watch 
by Virginia Business Magazine. In 2012, Greg was named one of the top 10 business school professors in the world by CNN Fortune and one of the 50 best business school professors by Poets and Quants. Before coming to academia, Greg worked in the marketing positions in, 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 in the industry with leaders like Kraft, General Foods, Procter & Gamble, and Saks Fifth Avenue. He serves on the Virginia Retirement Services uh, Board, uh, which is Virginia's uh, pension fund, and in addition to his teaching and research, he's a consultant to corporations, nonprofits, and governmental agencies. Please welcome Greg Fairchild. Um, so first, let me say thanks to all of you for coming out on this morning. Uh, you know, I know that it's brisk. I know it's cold. It's also the longest-running football rivalry in the history of college football. So if you did not know that, it's an appropriate time to be here. I want to thank, uh, obviously, President Sullivan for being here. I want to thank, uh, obviously, the Office of Lifetime Learning. Tom, thank you very much. All my colleagues that are in the room, I appreciate you coming out. I'm hoping that uh, I'm able to offer just a few thoughts that will be interesting and useful. For those of you that are our friends, for those of you that are our parents, for those of you that are just interested people in our communities, I'm hoping that we'll have a conversation where I'll build a little bit on the notions that Tom brought up about fastest growing industries. I'll put a few numbers behind those things. I'll also try not only to talk about some things that might depress, disappoint, worry you, because those things might happen if you, if you knew the topic was prisons. I'll also try to talk a little bit about solutions, and I'll share some stories about some things we here at the University of Virginia are doing to actually address the very challenges that Tom has talked about. Now, I'll tell you the, the impetus, the motivation, the reason that uh, I stand here has something to do with, of course, the notions that Tom talks about, about a fast-growing market. But actually, uh, there are two others. My favorite novel when I was a kid was one by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Scarlet Letter. Those of you who know this piece of work know that what it's about is a woman named Hester Prynne. And Hester, in fact, finds that she's been accused. She has to wear a big A around her neck. And her crime, her sin, her mistake has to be known by everyone in her community. And if you know the story well, you know that what ends up happening is what initially starts as an embarrassment for Heather actually becomes her strength, her power. And I, I was always moved by this notion that we all have moments that we have not done what we should have. That we all carry things that have happened to us that are embarrassing. That we all have situations, if not our own, in our families that we might not like sharing with others. And I thought, what if everyone knew that that was, in fact, your situation? Everyone knew your sin. Everyone knew the crime you had committed. And if that were true, could there be strength in that? And so in the modern era, felon might be just like that. That if someone is a felon, if someone is an ex-felon, if someone was formerly incarcerated, the thing we know about them and their identity is that there was a crime. 
And so this linkage between these two things was there. And again, I would have told you had you met me in the 11th grade, this was the most impression-worthy document I'd ever read. Now, years later, decades later, I'm working at the Darden School, and uh, my work has always been about the way that communities are built, the way that communities are built uh, through the businesses that are located in those communities. Althea Brooks, who helped arrange for me to be here today, we traveled the state of Virginia over two years um, with a program we call the Resilience Awards. I don't know if anyone knows that program or even remembers it. It still goes on. The program was designed to look at businesses that were located in places that, frankly, a lot of people had forgotten. Franklin, Virginia, Danville, Virginia, the Eastern Shore, Onancock, uh, Wise, Virginia, places that some people call Rova. We were very interested in trying to figure out whether there were business owners in those communities that were really contributing to the larger social fabric. This is very much a part of what we teach at the Darden School. And we were really looking to highlight the businesses that were there that were doing really well, because this was the time when we did this work, after the recession, when a lot of the news in the country was our economy was falling apart, our local communities couldn't get going, and there was no entrepreneurship to be found. And when we, Althea and I did that, we talked to people around the state, the Commonwealth, and one of the things we began to learn was that beneath every so-called bad story, our small communities are falling apart, there's actually a quite positive story. And that's always been a part of a, a nugget of the way I've done my work, is I've tried to go to the places that people might not normally assume would be places where you could find value. Um, part of that is actually some things I learned in my base MBA program. You know, one of the things we teach in finance is that for those who make early investments, early investments in things others overlook, they get the lion's share, a large return. If you follow everyone to the thing everybody's already decided is going to be successful, you don't do so well. I took my first year finance course with a man named Bob Bruner. Bob Bruner uh, eventually became the dean of the Darden School, and I years later was back at the Darden School as a faculty member. One morning, morning, one lunch day, Bob Bruner invited me to uh, Darden's Abbott Center for lunch. And during that lunch, he handed me a letter. Now, I, some of you may, if you've heard me talk about this, you may know about this letter. This letter was a typewritten letter, not a typeset letter. Some of us in this room I see are probably old enough to remember typewritten letters. <laughs> Typewritten letter means that, gee, all the margins don't look perfect. The kerning hasn't occurred in its proper way. But you all who remember, you know them when you see them. It's a typewritten letter. What was also different about this letter that signaled to me something different was about to happen is there was a name and a number up in the right-hand corner. That name was Jervon Herbin. It was a number. The letter went on to say, uh, Dear Dean Brunner, um, I am Jervon Herbin. I am currently incarcerated at the Pocahontas Correctional Facility. And I have been incarcerated twice before. I'm preparing to be released. And I'm trying to make an affirmative change in my life. I've learned, actually, a lot of trades while I've been in prison. And I'm really desirous of having my own business. 
and I'm really desirous of hiring other people like myself because I might be good at determining who that's formerly incarcerated is prepared to really make that transition and who isn't. I might know more. And so Dean Bruner gave me this letter and Dean Bruner says, you know, Craig, uh, I should add, the letter closes with, I'm really hoping the Darden School can do something for me. Now there's a little bit of chuckle in the room because some of you actually know the way the Darden School operates. Uh, we, like many top schools, uh, we actually have, <laughs> we have generous tuition rates. It's not a cheap place to go to school, and when we offer executive education, we offer that at generous rates. And so someone who was incarcerated having the audacity to write a letter to the dean of a leading business school and say, please see if you can get me some education, speaks to the volumes of his notions about possibility. Now, the important part about this story is that um, the letter happened to land on the right desk. Bob Bruner, a dean of a leading business school, or any dean in any leading university, receives any number of letters. Probably many of those letters never see the light of day, and I could imagine there might be some deans who would receive such a letter, and that letter might end up in a trash can. I could imagine that would happen. But on this day, I was given the letter, and I was told, we mean to answer this gentleman. We mean to give some answer. I'm not sure what the answer is going to be. Please find out. I went to Richmond. Darden happened to have a dean at the time, I'm sorry, Darden happened to have an alum at the time named Jim Ching. Jim Ching was the Secretary of Commerce and Trade. Uh, Jim Ching and I were having a meeting about this actually resilience award that um, Althea and I had worked on because one of his remits, one of his commitments was to try to build businesses in the low income parts of the state of Virginia. We're having a meeting, he closes the meeting, says, is there anything else I can help you with? I said, well, do I have an idea for you? I would like to teach in prison. And Jim Ching said, well, wh what do you mean by that? And I said, I'd like to see if there was a way we could teach uh, entrepreneurship, education, to uh, people that are currently incarcerated that were preparing for reentry. And I'd like to see if that's something we could do. And in fact, um, Jim Ching said, okay, that's really interesting. Um, I got another meeting to go to. Uh, but if you could wait an hour, if you can wait an hour, I might have something for you. So I said, okay. So I sit, and uh, he says, I'm going to send someone down to talk to you. Now I'm preparing for what I'm going to say when this person, whoever it is, comes down. The person was a woman named Banchi Tawalde. Banchi Tawalde had just been appointed by Governor Bob McDonald to lead his reentry uh, activities as governor of the state of Virginia. And Banchi Tawalde came down and said, I have seven minutes. What is it you want? And I had to do what we encourage our MBA students to do, which is what we call an, ele an elevator pitch. You must pitch in just a few minutes what you want. I pitched, and three months later, we began teaching in the Dillwyn Correctional Facility. So I open with those stories to tell you that this novel, The Scarlet Letter, for me was really, really motivating. But I also mean to tell you that sometimes life leads you into something that takes you in a direction that you might not have anticipated and it can make all the difference. So I want to share with you some questions, questions that got me into prison. Because one of the things that I often get is, you're a business school professor, what are you doing in prison? 
So I'm going to lead you to some of the questions that got me there. I've already told you I'm there and continue. And then we're going to talk a little bit about where we are. And I hope if we have some extra time, we'll, have, we'll take some questions. So the first question was, you know, I know that there's a crime problem. I hear about it. I read about it. But, you know, what actually is the level challenge of this crime problem? What is the state of crime in the United States? Because, again, there was this feeling, a feeling of unease. But I wanted to put some numbers behind it. I'm going to share some of those numbers with you. And at the close of it, we're going to have just a moment to consider uh, what's happening. These here are the murder rates in the United States since 1900. Now, the great thing about visuals is they speak for themselves. What you may note immediately is that murder rates are cyclical. They rise, they fall, they, they come down. We could talk a little bit about what some theories are about why these things have happened. But what I'd rather do is just focus you on the notion that as we reach this period, we are actually at an all-time low in murder rates in the United States. Over the last 120 years, never been lower. For me, as I began to look at the challenges of crime, this was surprising. I would have guessed something quite different. I would have guessed that uh, in the 19, I would never have guessed in the 1980s the murder rates were double, or the 1960s when I was coming of age, they were double what they are now. I would not have guessed that, but in fact, that is the fact. Now, some of you might be wondering, well, what about other types of crimes? So I also learned some things about violent crime. What you'll note here are two, two derived numbers. One of them is the rate of violent crime overall, but the second is our perception. So in one piece of data here, you have actual rates of murder, assault, robbery, anything that would damage or risk the safety of a human being. You have the rates of those in the United States. And if you note, they don't go back to 1900, but since 1992, uh, they've actually fallen from 80 per 100,000 to 23 per 100,000. There is one quarter the violent crime in the United States now than there was in 1992. Again, for me, this was surprising. What you also note in that dark blue line, however, are our perceptions as Americans about the rate of crime that is actually occurring. So what you may find interesting, like me, I would have guessed that crime was increasing. That 63% uh, then is, the question was, do you believe there is more crime in the United States in the last year than there was before? And at the same time that it was actually at a quarter Every year there, the majority of the U.S. population believed that crime was increasing. For me, this was stark, and I knew that I was in those data. Had someone called me, I would have said, yeah, it's, it's going up for sure. All the while, it's decreasing three quarters. Now, this chart has no labeling for you. I want you to know that's intentional. 
not a mistake. I want you to know there are three different crime variables there, representing each of those purple, orange, and blue lines. The one that's blue, I should let you know, is the murder rate. And this matches what I showed you earlier. Um, it actually, since 1960, rose in the 1970s, 1980s, and then has fallen. The other two lines, one is the burglary rate, so the rate at which someone broke into someone's home and actually took things that were there. And the other is the rate at which theft occurred. So we've gone beyond risk to our bodies to risk on our property. And so those other two, the purple and the orange line, are property risk. And I hope you'll see that those also peaked and, in fact, are at substantial lows. Now, some of you might be wondering, what in the world is that green line? Well, I've got a guess in the back. It's not public perception, and it's not drugs, though I would guess it might be either of those. That, my friends, is the rate of prison growth. That is the rate at which our prison system grew. And for my gentleman friend in the back, yes, drugs were the largest part of that growth. Please note that the growth in prisons escalates demonstrably in 1980. Zoom. So the other indices of violent and property crime are declining. The indices of those we incarcerate go through the roof in jails, in prisons, and yes, that bottom chart, now it's depressed because of the magnitude of the other two. By the way, those are juveniles. If I were to put that on its own scale, it would also have a really nice arc for you. Nice is a descriptive term. Um, so the next part of the conversation becomes, well, gee, who are these people that are incarcerated? And we're now going to look at some data to try to get a sense behind those magnitude numbers, what sits underneath. And here's what we begin to find. In the United States, currently, there are 2.2 million, million people that are currently under some form, of, some form of supervision. There are a number, a much larger number, some of us may forget, 4.5 million are on probation and parole. This brings us to seven. Uh, given the size of our population as a country, this means just about two, two and a half percent of all of us are either currently incarcerated or currently on probation and parole. That doesn't mean, by the way, ever incarcerated. Some of you may also know, I think, one of the talking points in recent years is that the United States has five percent of the population and we have a quarter of all the incarcerated people in the world. The other top-line number many of you have heard is that our incarceration rate is the largest in the world, larger than China, larger than Russia. As I like to say, we are the best at incarcerating people. We win. Now, what I think most people may not know is that 90% of all currently incarcerated people will be released. 9-0. So if 90% are going to be released, 
then you can do your math. That means there are 600,000 people being released annually from prisons. Well, this raises a question. If people are being released again, what might we, what might we expect, anticipate, what happened to them post-release? Well, we might respect, accept, expect recidivism. I, I, I've got a, 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 a ringer in the room. This recidivism thing might be this notion that 600,000 600, would come out, but some of them would return. Now, recidivism, by the way, um, is also an issue because if you've incarcerated folks and you mean to, and I say this seriously, correct them, these are departments of corrections, if we measured them on their ability to correct, recidivism would be, well, we guess, not that high. But my friend who's my ringer in the room, um, what do you know about recidivism rates? I luckily I do know the percentage. So we're going to share a little bit of that in a minute, but all of you be thinking about a number. Whatever number you're thinking about, we're going to talk a little bit about this revolving door into prison, out of prison, back at, back into prison because that matters. Now, this tells us a little bit about who those two and a half million that are currently incarcerated are. And this is an eye chart, so I know there's a lot you can't see. But I'm going to just make it very easy for you in the sense that states actually hold the base volume of the prisoners in the United States. Um, the federal prisons are over here. They're a very small portion of the pie. Um, the local jails, and I, you can't really see this, but those being currently held in jails include people that are convicted and people that are not convicted. The majority of the people that are in jails are not convicted. They currently don't hold a conviction, but they are currently in jail. Now, for those in prison, some of you were wondering about what. Uh, the, good, the news is that the people that are imprisoned that we're holding, as violent crimes have declined to their lowest point, they are the majority of the people that are currently incarcerated. Um, what you also need to know is that while there's been lots of talk about drugs, drugs only represent in state prisons just about 15% of the total. So as much as the war on drugs produced huge growth in drug offenses, in terms of who we finally incarcerate, they still are only about 15%. Okay? Now, you might wonder across our great nation that since most prisoners are held in the states, this is a state discussion as much as it's a federal discussion. And you might wonder, well, gee, which states do more or less? Well, you'll see. You can read. Um, Virginia's rate is higher than the national average. So we're not among the top states that incarcerate. But I want you to know that at the United States as a whole, the average cost per inmate per year is $31,000. I want you to know in the state of Virginia is $27,000. Now, as taxpayers, I want you all to know that, that those costs of incarceration, you pay in the public safety budget of the state. And because you pay those in the public safety budget of the state, 
I want you to think about, and it's apropos that President Sullivan is here, the tuition that is paid by the average student at the University of Virginia in a given year is lower than what you pay to incarcerate an individual. I want you to consider that the state of Virginia has discussions about how much money they give to our flagship institution. And that the state of Virginia, in, in those discussions about value, about delivery to the commonwealth, about the ways that education helps, well, we certainly spend and spend all of the funding for the $26,000 per year per inmate in the state of Virginia. Something for you to think about. If we talked about the whole U.S., that shouldn't say us, it should say U.S., if we talked about institutional cost for the entire nation in a given year, we spend $39 billion. Now, I'm going to come to more cost because that $39 billion is just the checks that get written in a given year. There could be other costs that have nothing to do with the checks that get written in in a given year. And when we have discussions at our nation's level about ways that we're not competitive, when we have discussions about budget shortfalls, I want you to imagine $39 billion always being an annuity you pay out. Unemployment. It is estimated that those that are incarcerated, because it's 2% or more of the population, that if 2% or more of your population is incarcerated and then comes out and then has a problem getting a job, then there would be depressed employment. So the estimates are that we lose 57 to 65 billion in GDP on just formerly incarcerated folks that are unable to get jobs. So there's the check we write while they're incarcerated, then there's the check we write when they don't get a job. Okay? Again, I know I'm making this really depressing. 11% of the population has a parent that is incarcerated. Now, in that, you should know, no surprise, if you are currently incarcerated, you are six times, if your parent is incarcerated, you are six times more likely to end up being incarcerated yourself. Now, there are a whole lot of reasons for that. We could go through those. But I also want you to know one half of all juvenile offenders, one half of all those juveniles that are growing, have an incarcerated parent. So you have family dislocations that have occurred and are a cost that we will see again later on. If 11% are if 11% of the children are incarcerated and half of those will one day be incarcerated, you should expect a base level of 5.5% that you should continue to see. All right? So when we think about those costs in our daily educational lives, when we think about, again, jobs, all those things, we're going to see those costs again. Remember, this talk was about the cost and about, as a business school professor, I care about the cost and values. Some, some might ask, why in the world would governors, Robert McDonald, McDonnell, Terry McAuliffe, spend so much money on re-entry and lowering recidivism? Because in most states, it is the second or third largest line item in the state budget. That's right. That's how much we're spending, and governors who are worried about budgets 
care about lowering recidivism, which is about 40% in the state of Virginia, just by the way. So about 40% of those who were incarcerated will return within three years. And by the way, 40% is a good number. Some of you are wondering about other states. That's like a really attractive number. Um, all right. So I've laid a little bit of the stage for you on the state. I've laid a little bit of the stage for you on the cost. I've let you know that 600,000 are coming out, and we should anticipate that we will see, we'll see 450,000 of those back again at some point. Now, I've actually also mentioned this idea of corrections, and I've mentioned this idea of the ways that correction systems could be helpful. Now, the reality is their budgets are swamped. Their budgets are very, very hard to manage. And so one of the things their budgets don't include or have included in lesser and lesser degree is the way we educate or help correct people while they are incarcerated. Most of those costs I was telling you go to supervision, go to feeding, go to electricity. You know, you're running a physical plant that monitors people for 24 hours a day. One of the things you're not going to add on to the cost level is let's go do education. And so candidly, when I went and saw Banchi Tualde, in some ways I didn't know my pitch was somewhat welcome because the state might say, yeah, so someone from the University of Virginia would like to do some educating. Um, we would like to assist you in doing that education. And so we started that pilot program that first year. There were 17 men out of the Dillwyn Correctional Facility that came along to be involved. Of that 17, four never made it. They didn't make it for a few reasons. One of them was, we found, you ask people to do, and by the way, I should tell you, I'm going to tell you more about what we did, but we were doing entrepreneurship training. We were doing case study method training, very similar, very identically to what we do at the Darden School. And when we were doing that work, one of the things we found was that there were some challenges people had. Those of you who know the way Darden works know that, gosh, Greg as a Darden professor is talking today way more than he normally does. Those of you who know Darden know that we teach in Socratic method and that what we typically do is we pull on audience. So when you say things like recidivism, I try to get you to talk about it for the room. That's the way we do things. Because of that method, we do that in prison. When we do that in prison, some of the folks that we worked with said, you know, I, I know what I know, but I didn't want to have to talk in front of other people. And so some of the people that we had were very intimidated by that. Some of the people said, you know, I do have a high school degree in mathematics. I have a high school degree, and I remember my eighth grade algebra. But I'm now 37, and I didn't know I was going to have to do algebra again. And so we had some people that were uh, intimidated by the mathematics. The third thing is, when we began with that first group, we made a commitment that if they were willing to invest in the education, part of that investment for them would mean they would be infraction-free during their time that they were with us. And in fact, they would be infraction-free before they could apply to be in our program. So that, we had a lot of learning in those early years. Now, we also developed an application program. And believe it or not, we developed this application on the basis of the University of Virginia's applications. 
We asked them about, uh, we asked them for a resume. We asked them to tell us a story about a time they overcame a big personal challenge. We asked them about what they intend to do with this learning after they are released. What type of business do they want to have? What type of family structure do they intend to return to? And we take those applications and we turn them into uh, the sets that will become our students. And what we've been finding in recent years in these facilities is that there are more students willing than we have slots to teach. Um, now, the year after we started the program at Dillwyn, we started a program at the Fluvanna Correctional Facility. This woman sitting beside Teresa Sullivan is my wife, Tierney. And Tierney is a Darden alum as well. She's also a Curry alum. She always had an interest, a desire to be involved in the question of educating, educating at the public level, and ways that business principles could be applied to the educational challenge. And um, in fact, for a while, we have, we have something called a Partnership for leadership, Leaders in Education. It's a partnership between Darden and uh, the Curry School. And in fact, I'm going to embarrass her. Tierney was the first director of that initiative. And so I came to Tierney and I said, you know, I got to tell you about these things I'm learning while I'm in prison. After that first year, uh, Director Clark of the State of Virginia said, I'm wondering, could you go into the women's prison? This is a good sign if you start a program. They ask you, could you expand it? And so Tierney came on and helped lead what became our entry into the women's prison. I'll tell you more about where we are now. But we have an application. We have a process of vetting. And we operate in two facilities, the Dillwyn and Flavana facility. So the, what, we also interview every applicant, just like we do here at the University of Virginia. So they apply on paper, but then we sit them down and we interview them. And with every applicant, I ask a question when I sit down. And the question is this. Why am I meeting you here? It's meant to be an open-ended question. It's meant to be a question that doesn't ask specifically, why am I meeting you here in prison? It's meant for you to have the opportunity to tell me why you are here. There could be a lot of things that could follow. I'm going to share with you Louise Chaligo. Louise, when I sit down with her, said, because I shot my husband. Now, I've told you most of the people that we talk to are not violent criminals. Louise was. It was a stark, it was a stark moment for me. Um, I paused, she paused. And we, I heard more of Louise's story. And I learned something that most of you may not know. First of all, again, violent criminals are very much the minority. And violent women criminals are very much the minority. But what you may not know is that all incarcerated women in the United States, an estimated two-thirds are past victims of domestic violence, as was Louise. What you may not know is that many of the women who are currently incarcerated found that because of the challenges of having someone daily oppressing them, either engaged in property crimes that they shouldn't have, or sometimes acted out against an oppressor, and Louise was one of these. She, by the way, has graduated and graduated and released. But she shot her husband. She, her husband didn't die. But even in the face of evidence she told me about the fact that she was acting against uh, someone who was victimizing her, 
she still did the crime. And was, by the way, quite repentant about all that and was involved in the educational program because she meant to make a positive change. And when she heard the University of Virginia had come to Fluvanna, she was super excited. Chris Archie told me when I asked him because no one will hire me. Chris Archie actually had a computer science degree, knew how to repair computers, had worked in a geek squad. Chris Archie said, I've been out before, I have a discernible skill, but no one will hire me. This is the scarlet letter. And he felt that if the University of Virginia had a program and his name was attached to it, it might change some recruiters' views of him that he could say more about why he should be hired because quite honestly, our name within this state matters. And so that was why Chris decided. There is a study done at Harvard on, they did this study, one of these experimental tester studies, they sent in two people to interview for a job. And they said, we're gonna send them in, they're gonna have the same resume, they're gonna interview the same way, there's just gonna be one thing different in Person A versus person B. Person A says, da-da-da-da, da-da-da, great, great, great. Person B says, da-da-da, da-da, great, great, great. By the way, I was in prison. Just that one word led to a, a one-third less likely to be called back for a job in this test in Boston. The scarlet letters reality, we can quantify it, it's 33%. And so if, that's, if recidivism is 40%, at least 33% of it might be because people can't get jobs or one-third less likely to get jobs. Um, I've already kind of given you this. Muhammad, this guy had worked in GE and was, had a master's degree in engineering, was a computer CAD CAM expert. And again, to give you a sense, I share this with you because if you were to watch our television shows, I've always found it quite interesting that in the United States our favorite dramas are about hospitals and, and uh, cops. You would think if you came from another planet that the United States, just everybody was in a hospital or they were police officers um, or lawyers. But the, the, I get it, it's good for drama. But what that might lead you to is you might not guess that a substantial number of the prison population have attended college, like Muhammad. And some might have master's degrees. And yes, we've met a couple of attorneys too. Attorneys, I'm sorry. We've met a couple of attorneys. So the prison population might be more diverse than you might guess based on TV and the news. Karee said, I am here because I have a debt. Karee had been um, involved in drugs and gangs. He said, I know that there are men who are dead or in prison because of me. And I think of their children. And I am here because I mean to make that right. Karee's black. One in three of all the incarcerated persons, one in three black males during their time in life will be arrested and most will also be incarcerated. And he recognized this. And he means to make, means to make a positive impression, positive involvement in the community he was a part of. Now, since Bob Bruner and the letter, we 
have not only entered, but we have expanded. So um, what we've done since then is we've offered three different educational programs. The Jefferson Trust funded uh, a set of uh, coursework for us in financial literacy. We did that initially because of the issue of women and domestic violence. We realized that there's research that shows that one of the women, reasons women stay in domestic violence situations is because they are unaware of how to navigate the financial system or they do not control the finances themselves. When we got to, so we created a case method curriculum based on that. And when we got into prison, by the way, we found lots of confirmation about that thesis. We also have a capstone program. We created a nonprofit called Resilience Education. And that capstone program, we pulled from our faculty at Darden, our negotiations faculty, our operations faculty, to help develop a curriculum that would help the person be able to make the transition. How to negotiate um, a lease on an apartment. How to uh, navigate questions of a contract that you might have to do. Things that you might not get normally, but would be real world challenges people will face. We have 73, 74 cases that we now use across these three programs. We do 700 hours of instruction in the two facilities uh, each. So that's not 350 each, that's 700 each. And there are 225 men and women who have graduated thus far. They all have these wonderful Darden UV University of Virginia certificates, and they're quite proud of them. I'm going to show you some of that in a minute. Now, here's what we believe. We believe education makes a difference. Again, people have asked, why is the University of Virginia here? Well, we're educators. That's what we do. So if we educate, it's only unique that we educate in the places that we're educating. We believe education does some basic things. It changes the way people think about you in a credentialing sense. That's true for all of us. We believe that the fact that you've completed a certain type of education says something to people about how willing you are to complete something, your determination. And we also know that the conferring of educational credentials produces confidence. A confidence that I want you to imagine, and we've heard this again and again, in the life of an incarcerated person over the course of a year, how often they are listened to versus told what to do. How often they are asked in a case method way, gee, I'd like to know what you think, could you give me your analysis? Doesn't happen. And so this confidence is built not only by giving the education, but in the method that we do it. Now, the question I ask our MBAs, because I've presented this as if me and my wife are out here teaching 700 hours. We're not. I taught in this program in only the first year. In the second year when we began to teach at the Fluvanna facility as well as the Dillon facility, we went to the Darden MBAs and said, would you like to teach in prison? I want you to hear that again. Gee, Darden MBAs, would you like to teach in prison? The first year, 13 Darden MBAs signed up to teach. The second year, 28 Darden MBAs signed up to teach. We presently, in this year, had 47 Darden MBAs apply for 28 teaching slots. We are at a position at the Darden School where we say to, we not only say, would you like to teach in prison, we say to Darden MBAs, no, you can't teach in prison this year. <laughs> Laura, name withheld, former president of the student body. 
I am here because my father was incarcerated. President of the Darden student body. Laura is a reminder that the correction system touches many of us, even in places that you might not normally expect. This I've already told you. Matt had served in the military. We have a number of uh, folks at Darden that are military veterans. It's a big part of our student body. One out of every six Iraq or Afghani veterans are currently incarcerated. In our program, we have had airborne rangers. In our program, we have had marines. In our program in prison. Some of you know this. The unemployment rates for veterans are very high. The levels of PTSD, people medicating through what we are now realizing are representative of mental health deficits. They're medicating using opioids. And many of those individuals end up in prison. One out of every six of those who have served. I got it. Bryce Robbins, he now works in Richmond, he got involved because he wanted to teach. He recognized that teaching is a way you can learn to be a better leader. That if you can teach a concept, particularly to someone that has not had an MBA, if you can teach that concept in prison, you can teach it to anybody when you finally graduate and go out and work. We've had 87 volunteers. And um, I could show you loads of video. We have a video stream that talks about the MBA is actually talking about their experiences in prison. Um, why do I do this? Well, I'm a citizen. I've been roughly aware of the very topics, the things that all of you have been aware. But I wasn't directly aware until that letter came. I didn't know anyone behind the statistics. And as a citizen, I knew it was something I cared about, but I didn't feel like it was anything I needed to be involved in because I got a day job. I'm an educator. Knowing large, the larger question, I said, educators are missing from this equation. We could be of help. And I'm not alone. There's a guy named Andy Kaufman, some of you may know, who prior to us ever entering our facilities was doing work in juvenile facilities with uh, a program called Books Behind Bars, teaching Russian literature. So we're by no means alone. I don't mean to present it that way. I'm a center. I always remembered Hester Prynne in the Scarlet Letter. My sin may not be as visible, but it's there. So knowing that, knowing that had certain things happened a certain way, had I been born in a different family, had certain opportunities not come my way, I might be them. There but for the grace of God go I is something I grew up with. And so knowing that, I knew that I was not different than the people that might be there. I think this is a human rights question. I think we in the nation and I think on the planet have begun to ask questions about our rates of incarceration. And I think it becomes a question, not just our rates, but what happens after people are incarcerated. Uh, incarcerating 3% of your population and holding them for 10 years without education, without an opportunity to develop, might be a human rights question, and I think it is. And so uh, I think it's an accidental thing, but I'm an uncommon and accidental activist. I got involved in something without the intent to go protest, but to do something about it. And so it's been all the difference. Um, so 
Since that walk, we've continued to learn. There are many more personal stories I could share. Uh, it's been amazing, the breadth. It's been amazing to see uh, our graduates. I'm going to fast forward to some of that. Um, because Casey Tony uh, now has a um, dog care business. Uh, Matthew Perry, uh, that's him doing his business plan presentation. That's our classroom. Um, what Tom Falders didn't tell you is this year, this is other ways the university is supported. We went out and asked uh, graduating Darden students to donate books to a library we were creating. 373 books were donated to the library that now sits in our Dillwyn facility. And these photos here don't show you that Tom Falders and the Alumni, and the Alumni Association donated posters, flyers. There is a University of Virginia room at the facilities, at each of the facilities, with books donated by University of Virginia students. That's graduation. The correction system has agreed and continues to support us in many ways, but pomp and circumstance, robes, hooding, the whole thing. We do all of it. We, and I have to tell you, you meet the parents, like I do when I do graduation here at Darden. You meet the children. You meet the mom that says, I would have never thought this was going to happen. You, and it is very, you meet the child that says, maybe one day I'll go to Darden. And I just have to say to you that um, it's been quite a walk. Um, Althea, I should take questions. I should take questions. Um, um, how do we want to do this? Okay, great. I just wish you would talk a bit about solitary confinement. It's just, I don't understand what the motivation for it is, how it could be justified, how anybody thinks it does anybody any good. So um, I view, this is, so I, you know, one of the things I always try to preface is, if it's not immediately obvious, I'm not yet a corrections expert. Um, we've been to a lot of corrections facilities. Um, we've, been, uh, we've been to Angola, my wife and I, the largest corrections facility in the world, I'm sorry, in the United States. And we've seen people in solitary. We've talked with them. You know, my sense is, if the, the notions I have, if I can see people sort of resurrect after getting involved in an educational program, and I know those people we work with are in what are called dorms, and they really do look like dorms, I can imagine what it must be for 24 hours a day to have no human contact. So I have no data, but I can imagine when I see the growth from what the people we work with, I can imagine what it must mean to, for many years, be without human contact. I'm uh, curious about the selection of using the case method for teaching uh, in the prison. It appears to me, uh, I've never really been in a program with case method, but it appears there's a, a huge burden on the student for having motivation, being able to read and comprehend and uh, schedule their, their activities to be able to present the material that they're developing. And what I hear in the press is that those are not skills typically found in the, in the population in the prison. And uh, I'm just curious if that uh, perhaps entrepreneurial uh, activities lend themselves well sure. to 
bridging that gap? Or if you could just address some of the, the skill differences required. You know, um, this is probably one of the most predominant questions we had going in. You know, the Darden School, among business schools, does have this belief in Socratic method. And it, it's, it's a religion at Darden. Um, that being said, we often are asked, even by other business schools, about, you know, you, you guys do this. You believe in it so much. I experienced it. My wife experienced it as students. It does, I've always believed, arm you with the opportunity and then the training and ability to present yourself, to discuss what you've learned. Because day to day in work, that's what ends up mattering. Now, that doesn't mean when we first went in, there wasn't some skepticism on our parts as well of, can this work behind bars? Um, I've already told you. There were people that we learned early on were super intimidated by the requirement that they prepare and they speak. But the, the correction system has come along with us. So A, we teach classes on Tuesdays and Thursday nights. They're two and a half hours long. They have allowed the men and women to change their schedules so they can be available. Uh, they have co-located people that are in our program in pods, is what they're called, so that they can run learning teams and study together. They um, have allowed no transfers, because one of the other things, those of you who know corrections know they'll transfer you. If you are in our program, you cannot be transferred from the facility. Um, and so, notwithstanding the things you've mentioned, we and my MBA students, were they here, would tell you that they are always amazed that even within the first two or three classes, the folks that we work with, the men and women, come having read the material. I'll never forget, you know, no one in prison has a computer. And so there are times where uh, we ask people to do, we ask them to do um, a loan amortization schedule, which if you know what that is, it's pretty involved. Um, and so I'll never forget the day I came in and they had taken pieces of paper and put them side by side and made the equivalent of a spreadsheet by simply calcing each cell, and they had it laid out, and then we got to the part of, okay, in the 17th year, uh, the portion that is interest and the portion that is, uh, that is uh, base, can you, and they look on the piece of paper and they tell you. They spend an inordinate amount of time because I think most of them view this as an uncommon opportunity, but I should tell you we only teach about 25 people in each facility. It, it's not everyone. Probably should take one or two more. Althea, am I still okay? Okay. Yes, sir. Mandatory prison sentences. Yes. Do they make any sense at all? And did anybody speak up when California a few weeks ago added a whole new list of offenses that will require prison sentences? So, um, you know, it, this is one of these uh, things that I've also thought about. It, it would be one thing if those mandatory sentences I understand there's a desire on the part of the public for safety. There's fear. I showed some of the figures on what people think is going on in terms of the level of crime. But that fear drives a, a worry that there are people that are committing crimes and coming back out and putting us in danger. I'm not saying they're not. But I am saying we can see that the levels are far lower than people think they are. So I think mandatory minimums are coming in because of this sort of truth in sentencing. We want to say that the person gets this. We want to require them to get this so that the public feels we have met our agreement. I think on the other hand, it would be different in my mind if I thought during those mandatory minimums there were concerted efforts and plans to prepare the person for when they would eventually be released. 
And by that I mean, I'm not, I'm not critiquing and saying they don't have plans. I'm just saying they neither have the resources or the capability to do the getting the person ready for what will eventually be a scarlet letter challenged return. And so I'm not an attorney. I'm not a legal expert. My sense is it's a response politically to a desire on the part of the public that may lead to some of the large numbers we see now and some of the problems we see in return. Isn't the incarceration a great function of the politics anyway? Um, I'm going to give my opinion. Um, and I would say that um, in my sense, when I look at those numbers of what the public perceives about crime versus what I showed you is the reality about crime, my sense is that those are data that other people are aware of. That in our modern political world, people poll against certain statements that might have purchase. And my sense is that, they, that there's been polling against those sentiments in the populace, separate from the reality, and that polling against those sentiments has led some astute politicians to say, I know certain messages work. That's a two-part question. Do you have enough data yet to know what the recidivism rate is for your graduates? And conversely, do you know what the effect is on the population of applicants who will refuse to entry? I can tell you up front, I can't answer the second question. Um, you know, the second question is a really difficult one. I, uh, my wife Tierney and I can tell you, we stood um, in front of a woman um, who had not been selected at Fluvanna. She was crying. She pleaded. We had only, we could only take 25. Um, I think about her a lot. I mean, in some ways, educators at institutions often have to think about the people that don't get in. I don't have data. I do have anecdotal worries especially when I know what's happened with some of the people we've worked with. I mean, I haven't even told you. We have people that are now in college. I have written letters for people to get into ODU and VCU and community college. Uh, we have people that have started their own businesses. I didn't mention CNBC has been with us for half a year, and there'll be a documentary on CNBC uh, in the spring. Uh, they're following three people that have been released from our programs, and they, a neat thing, they followed three of our MBAs who taught in the prison. Um, but I want to come to your recidivism question. Recidivism, for those of us who know, like my expert in the back, um, is calculated on a three-year rate. So you only know your recidivism rate three years after release. And so while there are 225 people that have been through, only about 70, because we were small at the beginning, only about 70 are at that three-year mark. And of the 70 that have met that three-year mark, from what, and the good news is, the Department of Corrections can track people through the probation and parole system. We know of three people that have returned out of 70. Pretty good rate at 40. What we also know is that two of our people that have returned, some of the return is not because of an incidental crime, but because of legal, um, there are challenges that come up about things that happen in your legal life that can lead you to come back that have no bearing on whether you actually committed a crime or not. 
Um, what I've been really excited about is Tim Hafey, who is a local uh, prosecutor, has become involved with our program as well. When I talk, law enforcement people seem to be quite uh, engaged and interested. Judges, I was at an event here, actually, and four federal judges got up and came over and talked to us. I haven't mentioned more. We're going into the federal facility in Petersburg in January. We have an agreement to do that. I was invited to the White House in August uh, to talk about the work we were doing, and that led us into the federal facility. Um, and University of Virginia alums in uh, Richmond and Petersburg are going to do that teaching after they're done with their work, after they're done with their day jobs. I know we're at the end of time. I want to say thank you to all of us for coming uh, and listening. Again, this, you see a title like this um, on a football day. Uh, I'm, I know it's not as exciting as uh, what Larry Sabato is going to predict about the election. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, I appreciate all of you being here. It tells me that um, either you really like Bodo's bagels or um, this is a moment in our country's history where we're thinking about these questions and that we're thinking about what we can do. And I think here at the University of Virginia, we're trying to do something. So thank you very much.